Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Hey there, Bible Center family. Welcome back. It's so good to have you here. Thank you for joining us on TV and online. We love what God is doing in your heart. We love what God is doing in our church. If we haven't yet had the chance to meet, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor. I'd love to meet you uh, next time our paths cross. We like to say we're a family expecting guests. And so let us know how we can connect you to Jesus and to one another. Have you seen that Rocket Mortgage commercial with Tracy Morgan? One of them actually made the Super Bowl. In this particular commercial, he asks over and over again, what's the difference between pretty sure and certain? What's the difference between pretty sure and certain? For instance, there's a scene where he says, I'm pretty sure these mushrooms aren't poisonous. And then the guy behind him falls over dead. He says, I'm pretty sure these are parachutes. Wow, he's putting a preschool backpack on the back of someone getting ready to jump out of a plane. He says, I'm pretty sure we can jump this drawbridge. But if you've seen the commercial, you know they're not even close. There's a difference between pretty sure and certain. And when it comes to your salvation, I want you to be certain of your eternal home in heaven. If you're taking notes, the book of 1 John is all about certainty. One of his primary goals is to give genuine believers the assurance that all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, and that God the Father completely accepts and approves of us based upon the merits of Jesus Christ. John is trying to prove that our salvation is indeed eternal. It is secure. It is not able to be lost. That's why he says in chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, I believe this message and this whole series is important for a number of reasons. I'm probably speaking to someone who you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm praying that God would use this message and this series uh, to not only bring you into Christ, but to give you the assurance that you have eternal life. No doubt I'm speaking to someone and you've been a believer for a long time, but maybe for different reasons you wrestle with your eternal security, the assurance of your salvation. I'm praying that God uses this series in your life. Maybe I'm speaking to a Christian and you just need some, you need some spiritual confidence. You need some spiritual encouragement. But another reason I'm doing this series is because in our region, there's a lot of There's a lot of miscommunication. There's actually a lot of error and even at times heresy that is taught on this subject. Just this week, I read that in our region, this particular phrase was preached. Here it is in quotes. Jesus put the down payment on your salvation at the cross, but you have to keep up the payments. I'll say that again. It was said this week in our region, Jesus put the down payment on your salvation at the cross, but you have to keep up the payments. There is a Greek word for that statement, baloney, baloney. That is an outright lie. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, 
it was finished. When Jesus said something, your sin and my sin was paid in full, it was paid in full. And so I believe God is using this series to help us clear up some of the common misconceptions about assurance of salvation. I want you to know that you know that you know that you are a genuine Jesus follower. I don't want your assurance of salvation to be based upon a prayer you prayed or on a religious experience you had or on a trip down to an altar or on some feeling that came over you during a worship service. I want your salvation to be based on ironclad objective evidence and the clear promises of God. So far in this series, we've looked at three of those evidences. The first one was several weeks ago. We saw that a relationship with Jesus in chapter one is actually an evidence of our salvation. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Mike talked about how that from 1 John chapter one and verse five into chapter two, how that a conviction of sin and a desire to turn from sin is an evidence that you have truly been born again. And then last week, I talked from 1 John 2, 12 through 17 about how genuine Christians have a desire for the things of God. It doesn't mean that we don't have the other temptations and the bad desires as well. It just means that God has also given us new desires and, and good desires for the things of God. If you've missed any of the services, I would encourage you to download the Bible Center app. You can get it for free at all of your app stores, the series. Actually, the last five years of messages are there. But particularly this series and all of the sermon notes. Uh, you can find the sermon notes for even the message that I'm preaching now so you can follow along. There are hundreds, especially this week, hundreds of references that we don't have time to cover, but that can help you in your personal study. Another resource is this particular book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian by Donald Whitney. The link is on our website. I would encourage you to uh, check this book out, to buy it, uh, to get the Kindle version. I think you'll find it especially encouraging. But today's message is titled Certain Allegiance, Certain Allegiance. And today I'm going to give you one big idea and three things to do. One big idea and three things to do. Let's go ahead and jump into that big idea. Here's the main point, the big idea of today's message. Jesus will never forsake true Christians and true Christians will never forsake Jesus. Jesus will never forsake true Christians and true Christians will never forsake Jesus. We could also say it this way, Jesus will never give up on true Christians and true Christians will never give up on Jesus. True Christians will not finally forsake the faith. Instead, they will be faithful to Christ to the end. A big evidence that you are truly saved is that you've not ultimately forsaken Jesus. Not only will Jesus never forsake true Christians, but true Christians will never forsake Jesus. Now, do genuine Christians face temptation? Absolutely. Do genuine Christians sometimes give in to that temptation? Unfortunately, that's also true. But the Bible clearly teaches that if you've put your faith in Christ and the Spirit of God has lived within you, you have eternal life. You have what the Bible calls, or we call, eternal security. 
I've put over a hundred references in your sermon notes. And so I would encourage you there on the app or the website to look at all of those references. If you're doubting this matter of eternal security, if you're wondering if a Christian can lose his or her salvation and you hear me say emphatically no, that Christians cannot lose their salvation and you'd like to study that more, I would encourage you to check out those references. But Jesus will never forsake true Christians and true Christians will never forsake Jesus. In the verses we're gonna look at today, actually we're gonna see this second half of the point about true Christians never forsaking Jesus. What does the Bible teach on this subject? Look with me in verse 18. 1 John chapter two and verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Two times in this verse, he mentions the last hour. For John and early Christians, the last hour or the last days or the end of time actually began with Jesus's incarnation. It began at Christmas And it will end when he returns to raise the dead, restore the universe, and judge humanity. All those references, again, are also in your outline. Even though John considered himself living in the last days, the apostles warned us that the last days will become progressively more evil. As they get closer to the end, they will get worse. And so he warns us that many antichrists have come. Many antichrists. Think about that. Ever since the moment that Satan and his demonic forces rebelled against heaven, there has been a supernatural, God-opposing, evil power in the universe. The original architect of the anti-God agenda was the devil, And he has always been the prime example of the Antichrist spirit and the energizer of the innumerable Antichrists who have followed his lead. People throughout history have tried to uh, suppose, they've tried to propose different figures as being the Antichrist. People like Nero and other Roman emperors. Some have suggested Muhammad or Napoleon or Mussolini or Hitler. But see, these are only the ones we've heard about. It is possible that there has been hundreds, if not thousands, or even more than thousands of people with the Antichrist spirit over the last couple thousand years. But that still doesn't negate the fact that there is one Antichrist, an Antichrist of Antichrists who's yet to come. John says, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Now, it's not capitalized in most English versions, but in our English mindset, we could call this the capital A, Antichrist. The idea of an Antichrist, of course, is someone who is opposing or against Christ. And we see that in the end of time, there is going to be one leader, one world leader that somehow is able to bring everything under his dominion. John calls this the Antichrist. You ever think about this? It's possible and maybe even probable that the Antichrist is alive now. It's just something for us to think about. 
In 1 John 2, 19, he goes on to say, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. John says they went out from us. Now he's talking about this antichrist spirit that has even infiltrated people that he knows. People that at one time professed to be Christians. They were part of the church. They were part of the faith, but they left the faith. They rejected Christ. And with this spirit of opposing Christ, they went out from us. In our pop culture today, unfortunately, many who are opposed to Jesus grew up in religious environments. They were given perhaps a wrong view of Jesus, and some of them were genuinely hurt. But some, like Judas Iscariot, chose to deny Jesus, and they've left the faith even in the healthiest, even having grown up in the healthiest of opportunities and religious environments. But John says they went out from us because they did not really belong to us. When someone permanently departs from the faith, it's a sign that they were never a genuine believer to begin with. Their departure from the faith is actually makes it, makes it evident, it makes their heart evident or manifest. I'm thinking of the passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus said, that there's coming a day that many will say unto him in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out devils? And have we not prophesied in your name? And have we not done many wonderful works? And Jesus on that day is going to say, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. I'm thinking of Mark chapter four, verses 20, or verses one through 20, where Jesus tells the parable about the, the farmer sowing seed. And he says that the seed fell on stony ground and shallow ground. That means that there are people that may at first seem like they have life and it's springing up, but they have no depth. There's no roots really in Jesus. And so John is saying people like that were never truly born again. Now, when you talk with someone and the conversations I've had with people who doubt eternal security, those who question, people who may think that salvation can be lost. When you talk to people of that persuasion, typically the reason they believe that is not because of a Bible passage, but because of an experience that they've had. Maybe somebody they knew, know has walked away from the faith. Maybe at one time, this particular person that they knew uh, showed signs of spiritual life. They supposedly loved Jesus and did good things in Jesus' name. But, but for whatever reason, this person has walked away from the faith and rejected Jesus Christ. Typically, people who've watched friends and family go through that are ones that most often question eternal security. And I can understand that. I can appreciate that. I can think of names and people and friends and family, even on my heart as I speak this message. But John says that it doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. It means that they did not belong to us to begin with. Alistair Begg says it well. He says, there are some who share our earthly company, but do not share our heavenly birth. Now back we see in, in, verse, in this previous verse, we see that they would have remained with us if they were 
part of us. This is John's poetic way of saying, if somebody genuinely has eternal life, if they have the life of God within them, they will remain with us and they will not fall away. This is actually a better understanding of eternal security. Uh, Some prefer to call it the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints. The perseverance of the saints or the true doctrine of eternal security says all who partake of the grace and power of saving union with Christ by faith continue in that union with its benefits and fruits. So in other words, do you, do you believe in once saved, always saved? Yes, I believe in once saved, always saved, if we're defining salvation correctly. That not only does a person turn to Jesus and profess Jesus, but truly they put their faith in Jesus, repenting of their sin, and the life of God now lives within them. That person, that man, that woman, that child will persevere to the end. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, also Mark 13, same exact wording. Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 39, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of those he, the Father, has given me, but raise them up at the last day. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians 1.6, be confident of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 24 and 25, through him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. I love the way C.H. Spurgeon summarizes all of this. Spurgeon said, if God lights the candle, none can blow it out. I love that. God teaches that those who put their faith in Christ are kept eternally secure, they can have assurance of salvation, and they can rest assured that the Spirit of God will not let them fall away. He goes on in verse 20 to say this, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. So here in contrast to the false believers, John is now going to describe a genuine believer. And a genuine believer, according to John, is someone who has the anointing from the Holy One. 
According to the New Testament, all genuine believers have been anointed by the Holy Spirit when we were regenerated or saved by the Spirit, when we were indwelt by the Spirit, and when Jesus baptized us into the body of Christ by means of the Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have this anointing. Now, unfortunately, in our region, anointing, and even now worldwide, this idea of anointing, the only two times John mentions it, here in verse 20 and verse 27, has become this monstrosity of a religious movement or doctrine that I don't believe the scriptures ever clearly teach at all. In these passages, God is not saying that there's some elite group out there who've had a second blessing or who have received some kind of extra anointing. God isn't saying that. Actually, he's saying the direct opposite of that. That's the kind of thing the false teachers in John's day were teaching. They were teaching about this religious elite. But John was encouraging all of God's children, you have this anointing of the Holy Spirit. Another reason that I believe it really coincides with the baptism of the Spirit is because of what it says, it's from the Holy One. Jesus baptized you the moment you put your faith in Christ. Spiritually, Jesus baptized you into the body of Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy One, you'll see it in your notes, clearly refers to Jesus. Thankfully, all genuine believers who've received the truth of the gospel have received this anointing. Verse 21, John says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth. He was writing to genuine believers. He was giving them the benefit of the doubt as a caring, loving pastor. He says, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. All genuine Christians have believed the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, the Spirit of God has taken the Word of God to point to the Son of God to receive the salvation from God the Father. You have received the truth if you're saved. Verse 22, who is the liar? Who is the liar? He's about to define what the liar is all about. He's about to define the spirit of Antichrist. He's about to define someone who is actually an enemy of the gospel He says, it is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So now again, he's not talking about this capital A Antichrist. He's talking about the spirit of Antichrist. We see in 1 John 4, the enemies of the gospel. Some of these enemies of the gospel were trying to infect and infiltrate the church that John cared for. And he said, whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ is actually anti-gospel. Now, the false teaching of those who had left the church is now revealed. It is a denial that Jesus is the Christ. John does not simply mean the denial that Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament, but we see actually in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, and 2 John 7, that the theological error is, that he's combating here is defined more precisely as the denial that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 
You see, these particular false teachers were teaching that Jesus did exist, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was raised in Nazareth, but according to the false teachers of John's day, they were teaching that Jesus didn't become God-like until his baptism. That, that spirit of God that descended like a dove, according to them, was almost like a, a ghost that came on Jesus and gave him the spirit of divinity for a few years. And then according to the false teachers, it left Jesus before he died on the cross. Now that might sound weird to us, but that was a big part of the false teaching that John was trying to combat. And so John here is trying to prove that Jesus, yes, is 100% man, but from the day of his immaculate conception to the day of his death, burial, and resurrection, in eternity past and in eternity future, Jesus is God of very gods. So here's the important point that we can learn that will help us even in our day. False teachers and false believers don't always outright reject Jesus. Sometimes they have great respect or appear to have great respect for Jesus. They just redefine him to suit their tastes. They reimagine him in, in ways such as this. They might say that Jesus is good, but he's not God. False teachers might say that he is the son, a son of God, like we can be sons or daughters of God, but that he is not the eternal son of God. They may say that Jesus died on the cross as a martyr or as a good example, but that he did not die as the savior. We see many of these teachings, even in the cults that impact us, the people that we come in contact with on a daily basis. You see, for a false believer or a false teacher, Jesus might be important, but not preeminent. Jesus might be significant, but not the Savior. And this is why it's so important when we're trying to judge any religious movement or discern any religious movement, the first question I usually go to is, tell me who Jesus Christ is. Do you believe Jesus is fully God? Do you believe that he's fully man? It's very, we've got to be very careful because false teachers may use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. They may use our vocabulary, but they don't use our dictionary. If somebody says, oh, I believe Jesus is God, well, I'll say, define that. What do you mean you believe Jesus is God? And if you dig a little farther, and if somebody says, well, I believe he is a God, a little g God, then right away you know that that is a false teaching. That is a heretical movement. 1 John 2.23 says this, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son, though, has the Father also. So whoever acknowledges the Son, this word for acknowledge means to declare, to confess. It's a very public word. And John now is describing the character of someone who's put their faith in Jesus. They're not ashamed to be connected with Jesus. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32. Whoever acknowledges me, there's our word, before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. 
Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with me your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I told you I had three encouragements for you. Here's the first one. Believe the gospel and be baptized. Believe the gospel and be baptized. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. Jesus Christ paid for your sins. And he stands with arms stretched out wide. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's not a matter of praying the right words or having the right religious experience. Just in your heart right now, confess Jesus Christ as Lord with your mouth. Ask him to be your savior and watch what God does in your life. If you're watching this live online or even on TV, I would encourage you to go to our Facebook page or any of our social media and, and to click the, the follow Jesus button. Our online pastor, Pastor Matt Garrison, would love to follow up with you and, and reach out to you and help you grow in your faith. That's why we exist. That's why Jesus has left the church, so that we can help you become a maturing disciple of Christ. If you've chosen to follow Jesus today or recently, I would encourage you to be baptized as soon as possible. In the Bible, every time the gospel was preached, or many times, they would say, believe and be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you, but it is the closest symbol, outward symbol of an inward faith. One of my good friends just reached out to me yesterday. We had a Zoom call, and he explained to me about how God is doing something in his heart. And he sent me his testimony yesterday, and I emailed him back today. It's just a beautiful testimony. And, and for a number of years, he's, he's felt that he wasn't worthy to be a Christian. But his testimony essentially proclaims that he knows now he's not worthy, but Jesus is worthy. And he's going to be baptized, God willing, in the next week. Believe and be baptized. In verse 24, he says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. Now, John, again, is talking primarily to Christians here, and he is urging us who believe to remain in what we have heard from the beginning. In context, he's talking about the truths of the gospel. John is saying remain, stay connected to, dwell in, immerse yourself, be saturated in over and over again in the truths of the gospel. The same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that transforms you. And so that's why, number two, I want to encourage you in this. Stay connected to gospel truth. The gospel isn't just the starting line or the finish line of the Christian life. It's the starting line and the finish line and everything in between. Persevere in the faith by persevering in the truth. In John chapter 8 and verse 31 and 32, Jesus reminds us that the only way that we can continue in the faith is to persevere in the truth. 
This is the essence of eternal life in verse 25. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. Verse 26, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. John doesn't want you to be left astray. That's why he wants you to stay in the word of God. That's why he wants you to receive a regular diet of teaching and preaching of the word of God. To read your Bible. If you're not sure where to start in your Bible, just start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again. The four gospels. And you will learn amazing things about the person of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 27, he says this, As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now he goes back to refer to this anointing again. The second instance, he's talking about the Spirit of God that applied the truth of the Word of God to your heart that you could believe. You have the anointing. You have received it from Him. And he says, because of that, you do not need anyone to teach you. Now, maybe you're wondering, does this mean that I don't need human teachers? I've had that discussion with close friends and family. Do we really need human teachers? Well, I don't believe at all that's what he's talking about here. As a matter of fact, if that's what he means, then there are contradictions in the Bible. You'll see in your notes, I've listed over a dozen passages that teach us that human teachers are needed and they are God's design for the church. And so we see that in Matthew 28, in Acts 4, in Acts 5, in 1 Corinthians 12, in Ephesians 4.11, in Colossians 3.16, in 1 Timothy 4.11, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So that's not what John is referring to. In context, he's talking about the truth that the assurance of our salvation. He is saying, you don't need a human being to give you assurance of your salvation and to teach you what you have in Christ. If you have God within you, God does all the convincing you need that you are his child. We, I like to describe it this way. Essentially what he's saying is this. When you're becoming a Christian, the Spirit of God gives you an innate sense of God in which the truth about Jesus makes sense to you like never before. This is what God did for you and for me when we first put our faith in Christ. It reminds me of Jesus' words in John 10, 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so I want to end with one last encouragement from verse 27. It's the final three words. John says, remain in him. Remain in him. This is everything that we've talked about is built up to this point. Remain in him. Number three, I've encouraged you to believe and be baptized, to stay connected to truth. But number three, never, ever, ever give up on Jesus. Never, ever, ever give up on Jesus. When the cancer comes, don't give up on Jesus. When the bank account runs dry, don't give up on Jesus. When friends and family forsake you, don't give up on Jesus. When the bad news comes, don't give up on Jesus. When tragedy strikes, don't give up on Jesus. 
When a loved one walks away from the faith, don't give up on Jesus. His words hold true. He is the covenant keeper. You can't be separated. He'll love you even deeper. You can go on because of his preservation. It's done. It's settled. You have a heavenly reservation. Never, ever, ever give up on Jesus because he never, ever, ever gives up on you. Remember this big idea. Jesus will never forsake true Christians and true Christians will never forsake Jesus. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.